Well, good morning again to all those in podcast land, and good morning to you all. A woman told her husband, you never tell me you love me anymore, to which she replied, on the day we were married, I told you I loved you, and if I change my mind, I will let you know. (laughs) Yeah, it is a joke, but that opens up an issue that causes us to wonder, uh, to love or to hate, or think thoughts, or alter our mindset. What happens? Often we hear phrases such as, my mind is made up, I've changed my mind, I must have been out of my mind to agree with this. They're not in their right mind. You better mind me or else. Mind your P's and Q's. Do you know what that means? I looked it up, and if you care, I'll tell you afterward. (laughs) How about this one? It's mind over matter, and the list goes on and on. Well, this morning we're going to study how Paul talks about the mind, specifically the mind that has been transformed. Now, if we were going to give a title of the chapter, we could call it Transformed and Transforming. And by the end of the chapter, we'll see why. I've put on the board the outline of the chapter. Verses 1 and 2 describe true worshipers. 3 to 13 describes true worshipers as members of the body of Christ. And 14 to 21 describes how worshipers, how true worshipers live in an evil world although some of those verses also apply to believers, too. Well, we've just finished the last of three chapters, 9 to 11, describing the role of Israel, the historical plan of God, and how the Gentile and the Jew are part of that plan. Paul was aware of the tension in the church at Rome, and as he pens the letter to them, he makes an appeal based on the mercies of God He's just finished saying in the previous chapter that all believers, irrespective of their ethnic origin, are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And as we study this letter to the Romans, there have been particular issues that Paul had to address to this particular church. The tension in the church came from the fact that the Jewish Christian converts are struggling to come to terms with the freedom that the gospel gives them in regard to their food laws and festival days. It was hard for them to accept that they could be godly without observing these rituals, whereas the Gentile Christians were looking down on them judgmentally because they were hesitant in all this. And of course, the Jewish Christians were condemning the Gentiles for doing what they perceived to be sinful. And I thought, do I wait till the very end to apply all this stuff to us? Because of course, the way to study scripture is to see what the verses meant to them back then, and what do they mean to us now, and not to get it reversed in that order. But I thought, I don't want to wait till the end, because there's so many things to apply. And I just have a little story that uh, I thought of as we were talking about the tension. At Halloween, when my kids were growing up, um, we let the kids go out, and we outline to them that they couldn't go out as a devil or anything occult, no witches. They could dress up as an animal or a famous character. And we actually gave out Halloween treats and we tucked little tracks into the bags. But I had a friend who really, I felt quite uncomfortable when I talked to her because she made me feel like we were really doing a wrong thing by letting the kids go out because we were honoring what Halloween was. Whereas I was thinking, you know, I don't want my kids to always have a negative attitude about life here. I wanted them to have fun. It was a fun night. They never knew what the background of it was. But that's how I felt. 
That's how our family felt. And I guess my thinking was she felt very strongly and, and made me feel uncomfortable, like a Christian shouldn't do this. And there's other issues, whether to take a glass of wine. There's other issues. Where do you go? Do you go to see certain things that I think you shouldn't? And so there was this tension in the church for various reasons. Now maybe those are poor illustrations, but it just made me think about this because we have to be so careful. In chapter 13, Paul is going to write that love is the fulfillment of the law. And we have to be careful when we talk to each other that we get our point across in love. Um, Psalm 141 and 3 says, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth, that I may not say anything rashly, unadvisedly, or properly. <coughs> Help me to have a filter. We know there are a lot of people who don't have filters, and they'll say whatever they feel, and it can hurt, and maybe they think they're saying the right thing, but we have to be so careful. Well, I'm going to begin by reading the first two verses of our chapter. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so his appeal here, I think, is a, is a mixture of asking and exhorting. I would ask you to do this, brothers and sisters, but I'm really instructing you. You should be doing this. He outlined in these past 11 chapters what God has done, and now in the following two chapters, 12 and 13, we're going to see what we must be and do. These two chapters are basic instruction for living the Christian life. But we shouldn't focus on this as if it were an outline of church rules. He bases what he says in verse 1 on something that has gone on before. Why should we do these things that he's going to tell us about? Right after he appeals to them, he uses a conjunction, the word therefore. And you know that a conjunction is a part of speech that connects words and phrases or clauses. So why is it therefore? Well, because of what's gone on in the past 11 chapters. These wonderful mercies of God, it's plural, the story of God's mercy to undeserving sinners, how God stepped in to make rebels, you and I, righteous, by providing the sacrifice of his son to die for us, so that by believing in him we would be justified by faith. He sent the Holy Spirit, made us his children. Now the word mercy is found in chapter 9, which we studied a few weeks ago, verse 16, and it says that salvation doesn't depend on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation does not depend on man's desire or any effort that we make. It's God's mercy. Paul has explained the gospel as the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He said that to us right out the gate. Now he's going to focus on the various areas of day-to-day -day living. He will build all that he is about to say upon all that he's already said in chapters 1 to 11. His leading thought in this chapter is the renewal of your mind. What he's going to encourage them to do is what is the fitting response or behavior of justified sinners to God's compassion and salvation. I'm going to repeat that. What is the fitting response or behavior of justified sinners to
to God's compassion and salvation. But these gifts that he's going to describe and the way that are used in these areas can only be done by having a transformed mind. Now here's a quote from Dr. Charles Erdman, and it's a simple quote. It says, we don't serve God to win his favor. We serve him in gratitude and love. We serve him because we have received that mercy and grace. I thought that was very, very simple. Because you see, often the world not understanding why we do the things we do will say, oh, you're not allowed to do this or you don't do that. No, it's not that I can't, I don't want to. I don't want to live the way of the world. And so as we get to these final chapters of Romans, John Stott, another wonderful commentator, describes the part of the book that we're going to get into now as going from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth concrete implications in everyday living. And hasn't it been mind-stretching? Some of these chapters, it's really neat because as a team, we'll ask each other, how was your prep this week? And we just roll our eyes and go, it's okay, we're, we're through it. I'm so thankful for this team. We spend hours studying, and it's so hard to decide how to narrow it down and not give too much. But here we go. Somebody said last week, oh, I've never studied Romans with this depth. And I thought, good, because this is all fresh to a lot of us, and so it's really great to study along. Well, next thing in verse 1, after referring to the mercies of God, Paul writes to the Roman believers that they're to present what? Right, their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now this idea of sacrifice to the Jews lay at the heart of their life. They had been given the temple worship. They were familiar with these terms in the temple. Sacrifice, present, offer, holy, acceptable, well-pleasing. These were terms used in Leviticus, talking about sacrifices. And sacrifices had a function. It made uh, atonement for sin, there were other sacrifices that were outlined, but really, it was a sign of wholehearted devotion to God. So for a sacrifice to be made, an animal typically had to be given by a giver, set apart for God and his glory, and once it was given, it no longer belonged to the giver. Do you get that? It no longer belonged to the giver. And when I was looking that up, I thought, how gracious God is, because he knows our limits. And you know, even in Leviticus, there was mercy outlined, because when Mary came to the temple and presented Jesus after the seven days, as was the ritual for her, her cleansing, what did she bring? Did she bring a goat or a bull? Say it. Thank you. Two turtle doves. That was because if you couldn't afford some of the bigger, finer sacrifices, there was an allowance made. And I thought, there's God's mercy right there. Well, the sacrifice was something that you gave, but once you gave it, it was no longer yours. So it would have been quite a new idea to take the language of sacrifices and apply it to a person being devoted to God. It would take a new mindset. And the prophet Ezekiel, and Jeremiah as well prophesied of this new mindset. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, he said to faithless Israel, 
and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And when you look at the text in Ezekiel, the word spirit is capitalized. It's the Holy Spirit. And we know, of course, at Pentecost that the Spirit of God was given. So the next phrase in verse 1, if you're following along, now in my translation it says, which is your spiritual worship or your spiritual service of worship? What other translations have a different word for that? I, I have reasonable service. Reasonable service. Logical service. This is logical, what you're to do. In light of the mercies of God, you and I are to be worshipers of God. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at Samaria, the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So chapter 12 and 13, we're going to see how this plays out. What is it to worship God acceptably? Well, it's to do his will with my whole heart, my whole life, to please him, to give him my life as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, Paul had already outlined in chapter 6, verse 19. Look at what he says. We're going to just turn to it, or you can just listen as I, I, uh, I read it. Chapter 6. 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now he had already talked in, in chapter uh, 9, verse 13. Yeah, chapter 9, 13. Um, that our bodies are no longer to be instruments of weakness, but are to be dedicated to God. Yield yourself to God to do his will, to do that which is acceptable and good, and that is what it means to worship God. And of course, it's not merely Sunday morning at 10.30 for an hour, is it? And it's wonderful to meet corporately, but that's not what all worship is. It has to do with everyday living in everyday situations. God has already transformed us in our inner being, but we're still waiting for the resurrection of our body. But until that day, we will still be inclined to follow the old rebellious impulses and rebellious impulses and thinking. Remember chapter five and eight and the circles? Now I drove, I drew, drew, drew the circles over there on the board. Remember the morning we looked at the circles? It showed Adam's kingdom and Christ's kingdom. And we're caught right in the middle because we haven't fully realized, been fully brought into Christ's kingdom. So that's why sometimes we think, can I be a Christian? Look what I'm doing. I'm pulling it. I feel the pull of all the old things that I did. The body has much indwelling sin. But Paul is not saying that the body is evil. He does not keep reminding us that the body is, sorry, he does keep reminding us that the body is going to be raised up in the last day. But in the meantime, just like those circles show, um, we're going to have those tensions and the pull. But we're to worship the Lord in our body, in this world. We're not to live by the standards and priorities of this world. And verse 2 is going to make that plain. Let's read verse 2 again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing or proving, some translations say, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we began this letter, Paul outlined very clearly what it meant to be conformed to the pattern of this world. He described it, didn't he, in chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. There was a rejection of God, not giving him honor and gratitude, and instead worshiping things he had created. But now because of all that he had done for us, we belong to him. And if we're going to live out those relationships and do his will, it must be with a transformed or a renewed mind. I can't live in the body of Christ and have a ministry in the church unless I have a renewed mind. If I don't have a renewed mind, I'll live like the world. I'll think and judge wrongly. I'll respond the way the world does. So at the heart of this chapter, Paul is calling to the believing Christian to be a true worshiper of God. And he'll outline in the following verses the standard by which we're held to. I am to live by God's standards and by the standards of the age to come. And we can ask ourselves, what do I think is ultimately worthwhile? Is it what the world offers? And you know it isn't. This world offers very little. A little fun for a while, things that might seem to please, but not lasting. But if by his mercy we've come to see that the only one who is worth your life is God himself, then even in this world you'll be governed by him. Our values and our aims and our rewards will be different than the world's. Sometimes you can almost feel like you're all alone because you look around the world and you think, what's wrong with me? When in reality, there's nothing wrong with you if you're trying to walk God's way. You're good. You're fine. You're okay. God's appeal through Paul is that we live in this world, but we live in it by having our mind renewed. We're heavenly minded. So how does the transformation take place? Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. Only a renewed mind can test and approve, discern, appreciate, and determine to do God's will. So how does our mind become renewed? It's a combination of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Again, I quote John Stott, um, very explanatory. He says, certainly regeneration by the Holy Spirit involves the renewal of every part of our humanness which has been tainted and twisted by the fall, and this includes our mind. But in addition, we need the Word of God, which is the Spirit's sword, and which acts as an objective revelation of God's will." Quote ended. When he said, the Spirit's sword, you know the verse that talks about the Word of God. It's a two-edged sword, and it does its work, doesn't it? It convicts people. And, and even as believers, as we read God's word, word, there's a conviction, and there should be, so that we can repent of the things that he shows us are really wrong and need correcting in our life. Just as a doctor goes in with a scalp and goes in with a knife and has to remove toxic things in our body, it has to be done. But God's the great physician. Jesus is the great physician, and he can do this. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul made a statement about believers. He said, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So in order to have the mind of Christ, that renewed mind, one must first have saving faith in Christ. After salvation, the believer lives a life under God's influence. The Holy Spirit indwells and enlightens the believer. 
infusing him with wisdom, the mind of Christ. The believer bears a responsibility <coughs> to yield to the Spirit's leading and to allow the Spirit to transform and renew his mind. So once a person is born again and has experienced this new birth, that's just the beginning. It's a process. God's Spirit comes to reside in us and he provides a whole new orientation to our thinking. But the ruts of our life, as Douglas Moo puts it, are not always easy to get out. Some of our ways are deeply ingrained and they'll not disappear overnight. However, as the Word of God is read and studied, the Holy Spirit enables us to discern and desire to do the will of God. And that's why follow-up is so important for a new believer in Christ. It isn't a matter of, well, I got my ticket to heaven. No. Peter writes something in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 9. 1 Peter 2, 1 to 9. I'm just going to read it. You can listen. It's all about holy people. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the true spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Do you see the verb there, are being built up? That's ongoing. You're not built the minute you accept Christ. I'll continue. Are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And here's the part that I love. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is why Paul can say this to them. Based on all that, this is how we're going to go ahead. He's going to bring to bear verses 1 and 2 on these next verses. So follow along as I read verses 3, 4, and 5. <coughs> For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so all these verses, uh, one of the questions, uh, page, uh, page 166 on, on verse 
and I guess it's question five, page 166. What fact should keep us from feeling superior or inferior to other Christians? I hope you answered that because there is no reason for us to feel superior. One of the easiest things to do is boast about ourselves, and, and this was an issue. Jackie talked about that in chapter 11, verse 18 last week. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. Think soberly. There's no room for pride in the believer. If my thinking is of the world, how will it affect me? Well, of course, I'll think I'm pretty good. I'll have a distinction, especially if I have a, a particular gift. But if I'm thinking with a transformed mind, these gifts, if I possess them, one of them, many of them, will be used to equip me to do God's will and to serve and bless his people. I won't be puffed up because when I look at where I was when God saved me and what I was guilty of, I'll realize more and more the phrase that you've probably heard many, many times, we're just sinners saved by grace. Mm -hmm. But not only that, we are part of a greater whole, the church. And Paul used that analogy, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians 12. He described the body and its parts. So God has given his church what it needs. He's given us people with different gifts. And furthermore, these gifts do not belong to one individual, but rather to the whole church for the building up of God's people. And just as we give ourselves fully to God, we give ourselves to one another. And these gifts are not to be self-serving or for self-exaltation so that our fellow believers may be blessed. And there was another question on page 167. Now verses six to eight. Paul lists examples of the different gifts. These gifts are, are just examples. One commentary said, this is not the place to get stuck in a debate about prophecy. Instead, the emphasis is on the interdependence and our responsibility towards each other. But another thing to notice in verse six, and I'll say it again, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Just looking here, yeah, that's the right verse. It says at the very end, in proportion to our faith. That's an interesting little verse and different people put their own slant. And I, I know in your resource book, it gives you the reason for that, the meaning but we're to be nothing less or more than we're equipped to do and be, not beyond the boundaries of that gift if it's been given, according to the limits God has given. So we'll continue to see a wholehearted commitment to God and a wholehearted commitment to his people. And who are God's people? Well, Paul is addressing here in this letter at this particular time, the Gentile Christian and the Jewish Christian at Rome. They're to be committed to each other. They are to be united. And he has such a desire to see Jew and Gentile united. In, in Ephesians 2, verse 14, this is quite interesting, as I, I looked about back at the, the way the temple was set up. Um, Ephesians 2 and 14. This print is so small in this Bible, and I'm getting so old. Yeah. Here we go. 2 and 14. For he himself is our peace, this is Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. Now, 
in the temple, there were different sections. For those of you who have studied in past times the way the temple was built, there were sections for the women, there were sections for the Jews, and there were sections for the Gentiles. And there was a wall. And on that dividing wall, there was an inscription. It was in the outer courtyard of the temple, warning Gentiles that they would only have themselves to blame for their death if they passed beyond it into the inner courts. So Paul had in his heart that desire. He wanted them to be united. And I just think about us. How united are we when those come into our congregation? Different ethnic backgrounds, different cultures. I know in Mabel there's a love. I've sensed it. I see people of different backgrounds. And it's a wonderful thing. It's not always that way in churches. It's not always that way in this world, for sure. Uh, this morning in the paper, there was a very sad story of TTC, where a family from Syria got on board, and there was a problem. We don't know the whole story, but from the way it's been, you know, printed in the, in the paper, that they got on the bus, and this bus driver, this woman, was not very friendly, and when they finally got off their stop, the mother and the little boy got off quickly, and you know if you've been on the bus, you've got to really move, because those doors can come shut. And when the little girl went to get off, the bus doors closed. And this driver knew it, but she kept going. And the mother, it, it's heartbreaking. She's running after the bus, and they get to the next stoplight, and the people on the bus are going, open the door, the little girl needs to get off. And she finally <coughs> opened the door. And I'm sure there'll be a report. I know if I was on the bus, I had an incident on my street. We had a family of a different culture move in. And one day, the kids were very young, and I used to watch as they all came up the street from school. It was very local. And this little girl was taunted by these boys. I didn't recognize them in the neighborhood. And my blood boiled. <laughs> and they probably thought I was some crazy lady. But I ran out on the street and really took them apart and said, don't you dare do this to somebody who can't fight back. You may think that this is the way you live on this street, but not on this street. So get out of our neighborhood. Now, I don't know if they were even in the neighborhood. And they probably, but you know, there's nothing that irritates me more when I see this because we're all made in God's image. And I read that story this morning, it made me want to cry because I thought these people have come from a war torn country trying to get here and, and get a new life. And look what they're met with. So the story will come out, and hopefully, things will be settled. But Paul desired the reunity among them. So as we continue in verse 9, he's starting to lay it out very clearly. Verse 9. Okay, I'm back over in Ephesians. Forgive me. All right. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, when you look at those, you take them apart. He speaks about love without hypocrisy. Love must be sincere made me think about the biggest hypocrite we've ever read about, Judas. 
All the while he was pretending, wasn't he? And of course, abhor what is evil. That's about discern discernment. Cling to what is good. Look at the verbs he uses, abhor. Hate what's evil. We should hate it. Not joke about it or make light, but hate it. Cling to what is good. Don't soft pedal sin. Call it what it is. I'm amazed that when I see some of these sports guys saying we made a mistake. No, we didn't. You lied and you cheated. Didn't make a mistake, you sinned. <laughs> well, verse 10 goes on to talk about affection. Tender, warm affection for those in the family of God. Protect those in the family of God. Watch over each other. Sometimes our brothers and sisters can be naive and too trusting. We know that because we've heard how so many people have been taken by these people who cheat by phoning and telling you they're from the CRA. Make sure no one is being used or taken advantage of. Care for each other as a mother would her child. And again, I like the one where it says, give preference to one another in honor. It, said, it says, outdo others in showing honor. Now the world would say precisely the opposite, wouldn't it? Honor me, pay attention to me. But we're to honor each other over ourselves. In Philippians, he writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. In referring to our mindset, there's that verse that says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Verse 11 goes on, don't assume others will do it. Have a zeal about the Lord's work. It's for him. Do it as best you can with enthusiasm. Verse 12 is rejoicing in hope, patient in affliction, constant in prayer. All referring to our confident Christian expectation. The Lord's coming back and we don't know when, but there's a glory that's gonna follow. Verse 13, generosity and hospitality speak plainly about our attitude to our possessions. If generosity is to be shown to those who are needy, hospitality certainly should be shown to visitors. Now in those days, inns were very few and far between and not safe, so believers were encouraged to open their homes. But no less today, when there are people who come into our church uh, to encourage them, my husband taught me great things about having people on Sunday. <coughs> Bowl of soup, make your own sandwich. He said, there you don't have to worry about the roast being too dry, you're stirring lumpy gravy and all that stuff. <laughs> and it's so cool, because you've got a hot pot or you've got a slow cooker. And that way it makes it easy and it makes it where you can enjoy the fellowship. So Paul seems to shift his focus now when he gets to verse 14. And we know persecution will come from the world. But Paul is saying, similar to what Jesus had said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Kind of reminds us of Jesus' words. That's what he said. I, love, I, I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's Matthew 5 and 44. So you've been transformed. You no longer conform to the way of the world. And you can be a transforming influence. Verse 16, he's now sharing to believers. We know that it sounds very familiar to his writing in 1 Corinthians 12. You know, we are to weep with those who weep. And we've been doing that, haven't we, this past 
just this past six months and rejoice with those who rejoice. But you know what? I don't think it's just to believers here. I think there's nothing better than coming alongside that unbelieving friend or neighbor and sharing with them, showing them your love. Pray with them. So it applies to both, I think. And then verse 16 plainly tells us, whether with believers or non-believers, we're to be a humble people, not to look down our nose at anyone, believer or non-believer. Every aspect of our daily life is to show forth a warm, kind approach to that waitress at the chalet, the checkout person. And there's a need for believers to live in harmony with other people. And it sometimes requires patience, doesn't it? We're to be humble and not to think of ourselves above anyone else. And we're also not to be feeling that there's certain things we can't do. We can do menial jobs. And we should be humble enough to do that. Well, Paul said in verse 17, he refers to retaliation. He says, believers are not to seek revenge. And one reason is that God himself is the one who avenges wrong. He knows all things. He sees all things. And he's all powerful. And we can trust him to avenge any evil that people may do to us. And he goes so far as to say that if we treat our enemies with kindness, it'll be like heaping burning coals on his head. Interesting thing about this in the notes that I saw, it was believed that the ritual of carrying burn, burning coals on one's head refers to an Egyptian ritual in which a penitent carried a tray of burning coals to indicate his sorrow for sin. In other words, our kindness to our enemy or perceived enemy may cause him to wonder and ask, how can we return good for evil? What a good opening to talk about Christ. So verse 21, his final writing in this chapter is saying, in other words, don't be like the world. Be a transforming influence. He started out in verse 2 of this chapter with a do not be conformed. And then in verse 14, he wrote, do not curse your enemy. And he finally ends the part of the teaching of do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. And so that's chapter 12. Uh, we're going to have a little time, a, a short time. I put on the board a discussion question, page 167, number 6. If you just get together for five minutes and talk about what these gifts mean, but the principles behind the gift and how it should be used. Let me pray for us before we do that. Father God, thank you. We have your word so clear. You know what you've written to us. You know that we have minds that can understand it. And so we thank you for that, that it's clear and it can be understood. But it can only be lived with a transformed mind. So daily we pray that you will cause us to uh, throw ourselves on your mercy in terms of asking you to cause us to be the kind of people that would be a transforming influence. Thank you, dear God, for your mercy and grace in our life. Be with us now as we go to our homes. Help us to realize this whole week is a week that we can worship you. And help us to do that in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>